Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this time where we can sit under the teaching of your word. Father, I pray that your spirit would be at work among us in the teaching and in the hearing. Father, we have come to worship and to be conformed to your word, to the image of Christ. Father, this is a special day. So, Father, help us. Do not allow us to remain unchanged from encountering your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Those were the words that God told John to write to the church of Sardis in Revelation 3.1. Just this past week, my uh, parents cut down a massive 100-foot-tall cottonwood tree in their backyard. Some time ago, they had amassed quite the burn pile. And the pile got so large that they had to call in some extra help uh, to, to oversee and to supervise the burning of this pile. And so uh, Robert Goodwin was kind enough to come out and lend a hand. And uh, the fire got going, and it was so big, and it grew so hot that it damaged this nearby tree. And over time, it became apparent that the tree was hollowing out. On the outside, it still had those green leaves. It still looked healthy. But on the inside, it was rotting. It looked alive, but it was dead. And if it was left alone, eventually it would continue to decay and eventually collapse under the heavy load of the tree and fall and, and uh, destroy and cause damage to whatever it fell on, whether that was a, a house or other trees or, or a lawnmower or, or a parent. Um, and so my parents, they, they brought out some, some tree cutters to professionally and somewhat safely remove the tree to keep from more damage. Well, John continued writing to the church of Sardis, and he said this, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. In some of the other letters, he said, I will remove your lampstand from you. Such a stern warning to the church of Sardis is chilling. They had a reputation of being alive. They were the church that had it all together, or so it seemed. Really, they were hollow on the inside. They were not a living church, but a dead church. And I think this should cause us to stop and consider ourselves. What about us? Are we a living church? How would we know? What does a living church look like? And essentially, what we must do is hold ourselves underneath the microscope of the Word of God and allow it to expose our faults 
but also commend us for our faithfulness. As we go through the New Testament, it's replete with all kinds of commands for churches, and there's no way that we can examine all of them today, but we can look at one passage and see what it says for us. And so, as we turn to Galatians chapter 6, what I think we'll see is that, at least in part, a living church is comprised of spirit-led believers who fulfill these four obligations. They restore the sinner. They carry the burdened. They support the teacher, and they bless the world. So this is where we're headed. But before we jump in, we're going to need to consider the flow of the book of Galatians because what we want is to pick up some momentum so that way we can hit the ground running when we get to Galatians chapter 6. And so by the time we get to chapter 6, we have already learned, and Paul has already been, been explaining, that the Galatians had turned away from the gospel. Galatians 1.6, and if you would, just go ahead and go to the beginning of the book of Galatians, and uh, we'll work our way towards uh, chapter 6. But Galatians 1, verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. It's not the same kind of gospel. It's a completely different kind of gospel. And by this time, too, Paul has pleaded with the Galatians passionately for them to turn, to return, to repent, come back to the only true gospel, the one that he proclaimed. And so he defends both his gospel that he proclaimed, but also his apostleship. Because he wants the Galatians to know that his gospel is a divine message. It doesn't come from himself but it comes from God and is therefore binding upon every believer. Galatians 1.11 says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. He would continue on and describe what that gospel is, and he would demonstrate persuasively that justification, and that word just means that you are declared righteous before God that justification occurs only through faith. Circumcision won't do it. Keeping the law of Moses won't do it. It is only by faith. And so as we come to Galatians 2.16, we get to see Paul's, really his thesis for the whole letter. And it comes in response to Paul's uh, rebuke, or it comes uh, in Paul's response and rebuke to Peter. Because Peter at this point has joined in hypocrisy and was not living Uh, in line with the gospel. And so he tells him in 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It won't happen. And Paul has gone on to point out that faith has always been God's way of saving people. Faith was not God's way of saving people only in the New Testament, but it has been that way in the Old Testament since the beginning of of, uh, creation and and then after the fall, God has saved people through faith. Notice Galatians 3, 6, and 7. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, know then that those of faith, these are sons of Abraham, Even Abraham, that great uh, pioneer of the Jewish people, 
was counted righteous because of faith, not by works. And so that means you can't rely on your works. You can't rely on works of the law for your own salvation. The law can only bring a curse. And that's what Paul says in Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And at this point, a lot of the Jews should have been thinking, well, then what was the whole point of the law? It's not meant to save. It's not meant to maintain your, your relationship with the Lord. Then, then Paul, what was the, por- the purpose of it? Well, he gives us the answer in Galatians 3.19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So it was added to to restrain sin, and it was added to reveal sin. It was to point it out and to restrain it in society. But also, Galatians 3.24 gives us another purpose of it. So then the law was our guardian, and the word there is pedagogue, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And we covered this a little bit this morning uh, in, in our kingdom discipleship study for Sunday school. But a pedagogue was a slave of a Roman noble who would accompany uh, the, the noble's son uh, throughout his, basically his whole life. Went to school with him, carried his books for him, came back with him. And if the son ever got out of line or started doing something that was not befitting of a noble son, well, the pedagogue had the authority to actually discipline the son, even physically. And so he was there to instill virtue in the son and to restrain him from from really messing up his life until the point when the child became an adult, until the child came into that full sonship that was his. While he was under the pedagogue, it was as if the royal or, or this noble son was actually himself a slave, even though he was legally owner of everything. And so that's what the law was. It was our guardian. It was our pedagogue until Christ came. It restrained sin. It revealed sin. But it pointed to Christ. And now, now that Christ has come, we're no longer under uh, that pedagogue. We have become full sons of God in our adoption in Christ Jesus. Notice how Paul continues this line of thought in Galatians 3.26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Galatians 4, 6 to 7, he uh, summarizes it once again. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We're no longer enslaved to the, the Mosaic law, and we're no longer enslaved to the law of sin and death. And what that means is, now that we have this position, We're not supposed to go back. We're not supposed to go back to the law. We're not supposed to go back to slavery of the law and sin. Notice what Paul says now, Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to slavery to the law. 
Now, at this point, Paul's opponents, the Judaizers, would probably think, aha, now we've got them. Now we can critique Paul because, Paul, you've just said we're no longer under law. Okay, what about everyone's sin? The law was meant to keep sin in check. Now that you don't have the law, what's going to happen? Do we have license to carry out all of the desires of our flesh? Quite the contrary. Paul would say this in Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but what? Through love, serve one another. So we have freedom from the law, but this freedom is meant to enable us to serve others. Further, what we've been looking at in, in Sunday mornings is that in salvation, we've been granted the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us. He enables us to live a godly life, whereas before salvation, we were not able to do that. But now in salvation, we've been given a new nature, and we have God's own Spirit living within us who causes us to live a godly life. Notice what he says in Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So Paul is arguing that there is a way of life that is far superior to one that is held captive to the Mosaic law. And that is a life that is empowered and led by the Holy Spirit. He says in 5.18, if you continue on, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And notice what types of fruit the Spirit produces in you. Galatians 5.22-26, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, and I think that means if we have been saved, if we have been regenerated, if we have been brought to spiritual life by the Spirit, then let us also keep in step or conform to the Spirit. And so life in the Spirit is good and life-giving. It produces a life that is Christ-like and full of spiritual fruit. And now what we're going to get to as we come to Galatians chapter 6 is how does that life-giving spiritual, that, that spiritual life that is led by the Holy Spirit, what does that produce in believers as we relate to one another? And what we'll see is that those who are actively walking by the Spirit and have the fruit of the Spirit manifested in their life have a responsibility toward those in the church. We're not islands. We have responsibility to each other. And our passage for today continues to describe this Spirit-led life as it relates to how we treat other people. And in some ways, it's a continuation of this command in Galatians 5.26, which says, to not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And what we see is that there are these four obligations for spirit-led believers in a living church. So are we a living church? What do we do with these obligations? So let's jump into the first one. Restore the sinner. 
This is the first obligation for spirit-led believers in a living church. Restore the sinner. Notice verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, from the preceding context, we know that life in the spirit produces a much more godly life than one that's reliant upon legalistic adherence to the Mosaic law. But we also know that even for the spirit-led believer, we still have the flesh. There is still an inclination to sin. The default is a desire to sin. Because notice what Galatians 5.17 says. He's talking about this battle of principles within us. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. But notice what it says. To keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So what that means is sin is still this very present reality and possibility. Even though on the whole, a believer led by the Spirit will live a life of much greater godliness. And it turns out that even in the life of the believer, in the life of the church, someone can be caught or captured, entangled in a transgression, in a sin. The fact of the matter is that even as Christians, we're caught up in this. And these sins, if you're caught up in them, if you're trapped in them, they, they sap out the spiritual vigor of our lives. And if we continue to live according to the flesh instead of doing battle with the flesh by walking in the Spirit, we can become entrenched in those sins, in those sin habits. And usually when this happens, we can't get out on our own. We're caught, we're stuck, and we need help. We need the help of others. And that's where the church comes in. And that's why Paul then turns to you who are spiritual. Now, is this some kind of, you know, Super category of Christians, like, whoa, they're the really spiritual ones. That's, that's Pastor Klein, you know, those are the elders, you know, the deacons, those are the real spiritual folks, and, and this is for them. No, it's the same word for the Holy Spirit. I think what he's saying is, it's people who have the fruit of the Spirit in their lives that he's just walked through. It's someone who is walking by the Spirit. And what that means is, it should be all of us. It should be all of us. Basically, this is what he's telling them. He says, look, you've got a responsibility towards your brothers and sisters in Christ who are caught in sin. We can't sit on the sidelines here. They're drowning in a muddy, miry bog of sin. We've got to help. They need you. And so Paul says that, that you who are godly and who are living a spirit-led life have a two-fold responsibility to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's consider the first one. He says, it is to restore him in a spirit of gentleness or meekness. The idea is to set them back in order, bring them back to health. Restore them to a position 
of life and vitality, right? It's as if you've got a broken bone, it needs to be set and mended so that over time it can heal and then become a useful part of your body again. Uh, or, or a disjointed shoulder. I had uh, problems with uh, my shoulder dislocating because I tore my labrum back in college. Uh, and it was painful every time it came out of joint. And there were times when I would just have to you know, grunt and pop it back in. Other times it required someone else to help out. Right? But it needs to be back in joint. It needs to be stabilized. It needs to heal. And this is the responsibility of spirit-led believers to those who are caught in sin. Restore such a one. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. In other words, you can't be arrogant and think that you're better than your hurting brother or sister. And it's not supposed to be harsh or a pugnacious spirit. Like, what are you doing in all this sin? It's not seeking their harm. It's a gentle spirit which seeks their well-being. It's an attitude that reflects the heart of Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, we all know this verse. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. It's the same word, gentle, meekness, as that's used here in Galatians. And notice what he says. You will find rest for your souls. There's recovery. There's, there's healing here. He's not bashing them over the head. He's calling them to be restored and healed and given rest. And so we're supposed to come alongside our fellow believers who are caught in sin and help them along in godliness. All right, so how do we do that? How are we supposed to do that? Well, as you go through the New Testament, we see um, commands for this. Jesus gives us some commands regarding this very matter. So if you would, turn to Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Now, a passage on church discipline might seem like an odd place to go uh, for uh, restoring your brother, but we see the whole purpose of church discipline is to restore a brother, not to condemn a brother. It's restorative, not condemnatory. So Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, notice this. This is at least one way how we are to restore those who are caught in sin. And this is when a, a brother sins against you. So if someone sins against you in the church, this is your responsibility. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. I understand this concept of love covers a multitude of sins. And there is a sense of being able to overlook a fault. But if a brother has sinned against you and that has caused discord in a relationship, you have a responsibility to go to your brother. You shouldn't be sitting around thinking, well, as soon as they come to me, I'll forgive them. You're supposed to go to them and tell them his fault. But notice, between you and him alone, this isn't a gossip party. Don't go tell your friends. It's between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, notice, you have gained your brother. If he listens and he repents, you've gained your brother. This is the purpose of all of these stages of church discipline. But notice, if that doesn't happen, verse 16, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So this has been escalated. 
But the possibility of repentance is still there. If they repent at any stage of this, you've gained your brother and you have restored him. And eventually you keep going and uh, if he continues to refuse to listen to them, you tell it to the church. And then uh, if he refuses to listen to even the church, then you're to count him or consider him as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, as an unbeliever, you treat them as an unbeliever. And if they still claim the name of Christ, you don't even associate with them. It's one thing if they are blatantly saying they're an unbeliever, but if they name the name of Christ and are refusing to repent, then you do not associate with them. In Luke 17, 3 through 4, we see somewhat of a parallel passage. And he tells them in Luke 17, 3 through 4, pay attention to yourselves. And he starts off that way because we've got to look to ourselves. The people in this church are connected to one another. We are to pay attention to ourselves. If your brother sins, it says rebuke him. And if he repents, you have another responsibility. Forgive him. So you can't just go and rail at him for the sake of it. If he repents, it's forgiven. You forgive and there's reconciliation. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, well, he's probably just faking it and you're absolved of any responsibility to forgive him. No, you must forgive him. You must forgive him. In Colossians 3.16, Paul tells us that we are to admonish one another. The author of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. That's a lot of days. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So exhorting one, of, one another is an act of love so that we don't get hardened and we don't get caught in the deceitfulness of sin. Because one of the things that Pastor Klein always used to say, and it stuck with me, was if I lie to you and you know I'm telling you a lie, you're not deceived. You, you know it. But if I lie to you and you think it's true, then what? Then you're deceived because you're believing a lie. And that's what's scary about sin. There's deceit. You think it is good. You think it is right. You think it is true. And when you're in that situation, you need something outside of you to let you know that that's not the case. You need the word of God. You need other people speaking into your life with the word of God to say, hey, wake up. This isn't right. This isn't true. So exhort one another every day. And we're told in James, that the stakes for this and the rewards for this are very high. James 5, 19 through 20 says, my, brother, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so this is the first responsibility of those who are spiritual. Restore believers caught in sin in a spirit of gentleness. And we said this was a two-part responsibility. And so the second part of this is that those who are spiritual 
you are to keep watch over yourself, it says, lest you too be tempted. And this is crucial. If we're not careful in seeking to bring someone else back from their sin, we get tempted by the very thing uh, that's going on with them, especially if we're, you know, talking with someone and, and, you know, they're struggling with something and they are, you know, telling you all the details of their sin struggles. You know, sometimes that's not a good idea to, to go through literally every single thought that's going through your mind. Because now what happens to the one who's listening and trying to help? Things start getting stirred up in your own heart. And if you're not careful, you can be tempted in the same sin. And now what happens? Now you've got two people that need rescuing. So, um, I used to be a lifeguard, and um, they would say, basically, don't go in and save someone without a tube, like a, a rescue tube, because um, if you jump in, the person who is drowning, they're just going it, to, it's a natural instinct, they're going to cling on to whatever is there. And so, if you're there without a tube, that means you, and, you know, bear hug, and now you can't swim, and now you're drowning, right? So, you got to have a tube. And so... <laughs> The illustration here is, uh, make sure you've got a tube before you go and rescue someone. Make sure you can swim before you go and try to save a drowning victim. Otherwise, now you've got two people drowning, and someone else has to come and rescue both. And so, Paul tells us to keep watch over ourselves. We're to inspect ourselves. We're to make sure that the corrupting effects of sin don't come into our own lives. And the best way to do that is to have a regular, personal walk with the Lord. Now, what this means is, in some cases, we might not be the right person to counsel another person. It, it may just endanger yourself. Now, what this doesn't mean is, well, I see this sin in someone else's life, and I can't do anything about it. All right, I'll just let it go. No, if we keep with the analogy beforehand, go call the lifeguard over. Get someone who can help. I mean, you may not be able to swim, but at least you can spot it when someone's in danger. So call someone out uh, who, who can help. Get someone who is mature enough in Christ to deal with the sin and to help this person. And if you, you have some spiritual maturity and you're helping someone who is stuck in sin, you still need to keep watch over yourself because total depravity is a real thing. We are each one of us capable of committing the worst types of sins. We don't always do it, but we're capable of it. We don't suddenly become immune to certain sins after a certain point in our lives. We must always be vigilant against sin. We must always be killing sin in our own personal lives if we're going to be of any help to others. And so what that means is we must strive to be those who walk by the Spirit and those who can help others in need. This is our first obligation as a spirit-led believer in a living church. Restore the sinner. And we go on then to the second, which is to carry the burden. So now in verses 2 through 5, Paul progresses from someone who's caught in sin to just believers who are caught in or, or who are uh, under burdens generally. So not, not necessarily sin, but life is hard. And those who are burdened. And so he gives a command in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're not islands unto, unto ourselves. We're not to be isolated from each other. 
We need each other. We're guaranteed to have difficulties in this life which are going to bring us to our knees. And in those times, we need someone who can walk beside us and who's not going to be afraid to get involved in our life and help us carry on. And if we're not currently in one of those moments of, of, the, of that desperation and, and that burdened uh, state, well, that means you're in the perfect spot to help someone else who is in that situation. And Paul says that doing this fulfills the law of Christ. I want to take some time to spend, uh, take some time to consider that phrase, the law of Christ. And there's a whole bunch of understandings of what the law of Christ is. I think a helpful place to start is 1 Corinthians 9.21. And if you would, go ahead and turn there. Because I want you to see it, and I want to point uh, a few things out here. So the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.21 To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. Now, what he's saying is, at times on his missionary journeys, there, there are times when he doesn't live according to the Mosaic law. He, he's a missionary, and he's an apostle to the Gentiles, and so there are times that he doesn't live according to the Mosaic law. Because he's saying to those outside the law, you know, that would be the Gentiles, outside the Mosaic law, then I became as one outside the law, that being the Mosaic law. But notice what he says. He clarifies. He's not outside the law of God. But what is he under? The law of Christ. So what we have here are three different laws. The law, which is the law of Moses, the law of God, and the law of Christ. The law of Moses refers to that law which came with the covenant at Sinai. Remember, God came down on Sinai thunder and lightning, and he spoke, and you have the Ten Commandments, and, and the whole covenant there, right? The law of God came, or the, excuse me, the law of Moses was that law that was given there. And so now he talks about the law of God, which seems to be a higher category, uh, or, or a broader category, which is what God always demands at all times, whether that's, whether that's Old Testament Jewish uh, the Jewish nation, or if it's New Testament church. The law of God is that which is there all the time. And then finally, he talks about the law of Christ, and this is what Paul was constrained to in his present time, as opposed to the law of Moses. And so this is the law that Christ established when he inaugurated the new covenant at his death. And so I think a simple diagram, I don't know if you can read that, uh, I think this can help illustrate the relationship between all these three laws. Notice he says that he is not under the law of Moses, but he's under the law of Christ. But no matter what, he's always under the law of God. And so you've got a big category of the law of God. And then the law of Moses was, he was under the law of Moses until when? Christ died and instituted the new covenant. No longer the old covenant, but now the new covenant. And so new covenant believers are not under the law of Moses. What are they under? The law of Christ. 
And so, well, then what is this law of Christ? And I think, again, this is where everyone uh, diverges, but I think the best way to think of it is that it is everything that the Christian in this age is under obligation to obey. And that gets fleshed out in the New Testament. So it includes all the commands in the New Testament. Uh, it includes things that are carried over uh, from, from the Old Testament and all of that. But there, is, there does seem to be a primary tenet of this law of Christ, which is that of love. Notice John 13, 34. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Jesus commanded people, or excuse me, God commanded people in the Old Testament to love each other. So what's so new about this? I think it's that qualifier. Just as I have loved you. We are to love as Christ has loved us, sacrificially, to the point of death. Taking upon himself things that he didn't deserve, but that's how he demonstrated his love. This is the new commandment that he gave to his disciples. And so it's one that is, you could say, summarized by love for one another, and I think also love for God. And so, if, you, if we bring that back with us, when we bear the burdens of another believer... We're actually fulfilling this law of Christ to love one another. And so I just want to pause and ask you, are you currently bearing the burdens of someone in this church? If not, why not? Have you isolated yourself from the people of the church except for a couple hours of uh, a week? If so you may not be carrying too many burdens. But if you see this command from God and rightly recognize that it applies to you, I would just say, come to the elders. We have needs in our church. We can point you in various directions in ways that you can help people in our church. We, we do have these needs. And the Lord has equipped us. The Lord has equipped you to meet at least some of those needs. Maybe not all of them. <laughs> Definitely not all of them, but at least some of them. So, but what about on the flip side? What if you're the one who's burdened and, and needs help right now? Well, then you too. <laughs> Come to the elders. Let them know. So that way we can try to connect with people in the church who can help. Let people know. Let the elders know. If you bottle it up until it's too late, there's going to be an explosion at some point, and it's going to hurt. Let your brothers and sisters have the privilege of ministering to you. Well, as we continue then in verses 3 through 5, Paul addresses something that can get in the way of fulfilling this command. Notice verse 3. He says, For... If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, 
he deceives himself. So that little four there shows that this statement is directly related to the preceding command, right? To bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so this is support. This is showing what can get in the way of that command. He is showing that pride and overinflation of yourself will inhibit you from lovingly bearing each other's burdens. It seems that pride makes the heart rage against sweat and getting your hands dirty in service to others. Our hearts cry out, I'm not a servant. But I think it'll do our hearts some good to think on these words. Notice what it says. When he is nothing. We're not thinking rightly when we're captured by pride. When we think we are something, we are not thinking rightly. And so what's the proper response then to this arrogance? Well, Paul continues on. Basically, it's this. Think rightly of yourself. Don't think less of yourself than you should and don't think more of yourself than you should. Think rightly of yourself. Verses four through five, Paul says, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. Paul is not encouraging a sinful boasting here. He's telling you, you need to check yourself. Don't think more highly of yourself and your work than you should, but test it, examine it. And if you would, turn to Romans 12, 3 through 8, because I think what Paul does here is that he expands upon this, this uh, principle. Galatians and Romans, I said this this morning, but Galatians and Romans are really parallel to one another uh, in their arguments. Galatians is just a bit condensed, uh, is a condensed version of this. Um, and so what we see is parallel to this, this statement, we, we see Paul expanding upon it in Romans. So notice what he says in Romans chapter 12, Verses 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But what does he say? Here's how you're supposed to think. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, you don't have nothing you, you've been given something. God has given, uh, by his grace, you the, the, ability, the abilities that you have, the gifts that you have. Because notice what he says in verse 4 as we continue on. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So you have a gift, and it's been given to you by the Lord. That's by His grace. He says, since we have that, let us use them. You've been given a gift by the Lord that is specific to you, that is to, meant to be used in service to your church. And this is the church that you're at least part of right now. <laughs> If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, 
in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And there are other lists of spiritual gifts throughout the New Testament. This isn't an exhaustive list. This is, these are examples, right? But his point here is we are to think rightly of ourselves, which means thinking about ourselves in terms of what God has granted us the ability to do. And I think what this does is it keeps us from two separate extremes. The one is that it will keep us from arrogance because we know who has given us our gifts. It's by God's grace that we can do anything good. It is not something within ourselves that is all, all great. But I think it will also keep us from the opposite extreme, which is a false sense of humility that says, little old me, I can't really do anything. But really, that's an excuse to not be serving the church. God, ha- If you are his, God has granted you the ability, the gift, to serve his church. It's meant to be used for the edification, the building up of the body. So don't let pride, in whatever form it takes, because I think that false sense of humility is a sense of pride, don't let that hinder you from bearing others' burdens. Again, this is our obligation as spirit-led believers. Carry the burdened. Carry the burdened. And what we come to now is our third obligation of spirit-led believers in a living church, which is to support the teacher. Now, this one is always an awkward one for for a preacher to touch on. Uh, Either that or it's his favorite one. Uh, For me, it's always a little bit awkward, but but it's in God's word, so we're going to go for it. So verses 6 through 9, Paul now has dealt with our responsibility towards believers caught in sin and and those that have burdens, and now he turns his attention to how we should respond to those who teach us the word of God. He begins with a command. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And so what we see is believers are to support those who teach them the word of God. This is a principle that's found in other places in Scripture as well. Uh, so consider First uh, Timothy five seventeen through eighteen. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, "You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages." Now, um, for those who who teach. Uh, and think that this is a really great passage because it means you know we get paid to do what we do. We should also not forget that the scripture compares us to an ox that's treading out its grain. So there's a balance here. Um, but but we see that principle there. First Corinthians nine six through twelve. Paul is telling the the Corinthians, is it only Barnabas and I? Now this is a, this one is an interesting because we all, we also see exceptions to this. Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. 
If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? And so what all these passages demonstrate is that the normal pattern is that those who give themselves to the ministry should be compensated. But there are also times when it is appropriate for the, the teacher to voluntarily relinquish those. If, if, there is, if the reputation of the gospel is at stake, it is better to withhold that and just say, look, I'll go work, than to bring shame upon the gospel if that's an issue. But if that's not an issue, the normal pattern is for those who are taught the word to share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, what I want to get to, though, is this. What this assumes is that being taught the word is valuable. It's worthwhile. How much do we value the proclaimed word of God? Why do we come here on a Sunday? Again, do we come here on a Sunday, sit down, and then as soon as we finish our singing and everything, start checking our watches to see when it'll be over and we can get out? Do we value the preaching of God's word? Do we come expecting to hear a message from God from his book? Is this entertainment or is it transformation? Do we come to church with the Thessalonians attitude? Remember what Paul said to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2.13? And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. And so if we value the proclaimed word of God, support for those who are teaching should just be a, an aside. It should just be natural, not really a big, uh, a big deal. And then in verses 7 through 8, Paul continues to give some motivation for this command. He appeals to a broader principles, which is you reap what you sow. And he says, do not be deceived in verse 7. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So Paul's going back to this contrast again between the Spirit and the flesh. And basically, every person is planting one of two kinds of seeds. Either you're planting fleshly seeds or you're planting spiritual seeds with a capital S, right? Holy Spirit seeds. And these two kinds of seeds produce two different kinds of fruit. Uh, and we already looked at, well, yeah, we considered some of that in, in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. And so these fleshly seeds produce what he calls corruption, right? That's the idea of something that's decaying, like rotting, nasty fruit, right? Um, this kind of fruit is perishable. It decomposes and it attracts flies along the way. On the other hand, you've got the spiritual seeds, these are ones that produce eternal life. And again, the point here is not do good things and you'll get to heaven. But Paul is saying there's a natural trajectory for these two paths. One leads in, in death, destruction, one, uh, corruption. The other leads to eternal life. And so the question is, where are you planting your seeds? And this should be an evaluation that you have not just in where you give your money, but in every area of your life. 
what kind of seeds are you planting? Are you planting fleshly seeds in your endeavors, in your pursuits, or are you planting spiritual seeds that grow into eternal life? And so Paul expounds this principle of sowing and reaping, and then he continues the analogy with a call to persist in good works while you wait for the harvest. Much like a farmer who continues to plant because he knows that if he's faithful in his task now, he will receive the fruit of his labors. And so Paul calls on them to not give up. Don't give up on planting those spiritual seeds. He says in Galatians 6, 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And so his exhortation is to press on with the sowing. The harvest will come. And now what we come to is our final obligation as spirit-led believers in a living church, which is, oops, bless, bless the world. Bless the world. And this is somewhat of a misnomer because, as we'll see, it is bless the world, but there's a higher priority than even that. But notice, Paul finishes his instruction here with a summary command that encapsulates everything that he's been talking about. And so in verse 10 we read, So then... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So notice that there's a hierarchy here. We do have to do good works to all people. We are called to bless the cities that we live in. We're not supposed to be huddled up here in a castle uh, in shooting arrows out, but we're supposed to be going out and blessing those around us, even unbelievers. But the height of our efforts should be towards those in the church. Bless the world, but don't neglect your brothers and sisters in the process. These are the people that we're going to be spending eternity with. Let's practice here and now how to love one another and serve one another. So, figure out how to bless someone here at Grace Bible Church. Show hospitality to each other. Before you leave today, write yourself a note or put a reminder in your phone so that you can remember to ask someone out for dinner. Have them over to your house. Go over to their house. If you're single and, you know, well, then just ask someone else, like, hey, can I come over to your place for dinner? Uh, I'm sure that's fine. You know, especially in college, I did that a lot. Um, so it, I, if they're a really spiritual person, they'll be okay with that. But uh, shoot a text asking someone how you can pray for them. Give them a call. Better yet, sit down with someone physically and pray with them. Older saints, seek to be involved in the life of the younger saints, the younger believers. <clears throat> we need you. We need your wisdom. We need your support. You've lived longer than we have. And along the way, you've learned lessons we haven't learned yet. So reach out to the younger saints. Younger saints, bless those who are older. <laughs> Come talk to Jerry. He's got things that he needs done. If there are things around the house that need to be done, 
work that needs to be done, come over. And then also, when you've done that, sit around and drink their sweet tea or whatever it is. We need to be involved in each other's lives. We need each other. And as we love each other, what we're doing is we're showing the world how great our God is. We're all different. We're different ages, different backgrounds, all kinds of different people here. And yet we serve the same God. We, say, we serve the same Savior. Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed all of us from sin. And so as we express unity, we're expressing something that is unknown to the world. We're showing the world how great our God is. And so as we think through this, these four obligations, we should consider, are we a living church? Well, are we doing these things? Or are we hollow in the inside? Which is it? And sometimes it's a mixture of the two. Jesus' words from John form a fitting conclusion. We've already read some of it. John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my, my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for saving us, for making us your own, for giving us your spirit who produces life in us and a life that is godly and good and full of fruit. Lord, may we be people who walk by the spirit, not according to the flesh. Lord, may we, may we do that here as a church, as a body. May we be a spirit-led church who love one another, who restore each other, who carry each other, who support each other, and who bless each other. May it be so. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.